right, hello. Hey, for, uh, for many of you, this couple needs no introduction. But for those of you that may be visiting us or new around here, this is Mike and Joy Sanders. And they have been part of our prayer ministry for over eight years, and they've led our prayer ministry for most of that time. And Mike is getting relocated at work to Arizona, and uh, this is his last Sunday with us, so we're there last Sunday. So, you know, feel free to say hi, give him a hug and kiss, because I know that he, they probably prayed with many of you while you've been hurting, while you've been sick. They've celebrated victories in your life with you through prayer. They may have visited you in the hospital, came to your house and prayed with you. They've just been faithful servants to the body here, and we want to send them off well. So if you just join me in prayer. Oh, Lord, Father God, we just thank you that you've brought this family and joined us together as one family and one community. And Lord, we, uh, we have all cried together and laughed together and celebrated together and shared life together. And I'm confident that they will just continue, Lord, in that calling that you have given them, the calling and that passion for prayer, for seeing you work in people's lives. And so, Lord, I just pray that, that, um, that you just continue to bless them when I know they will go and they will bless a new church family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, man. Thank you, guys. Brother. Love you. Mm. You know, they're not, just, they're not just an example of community. They are an example of relationship. You know, and community is built on relationship. And communities and relationships, you know, they're formed many different ways for many different purposes and, and for many different reasons. Um, put it this way, Nancy and I are in a relationship. You know, Nancy and I are in a relationship. And, uh, and we did it, believe it or not, we did it the old-fashioned way. We met face-to-face. We were both in high school. It was our first job. Both of our first job, Kentucky Fried Chicken people. And, you know, we became friends. We were friends for about a year and a half. We got to know each other. We got to know each other's friends. We got to know each other's stories. And then one day it just clicked. And she was like, this guy's finger licking good. And then we started dating. Then we started dating. We dated for about a year and a half. We got married. And, um, and this year, we will be celebrating 36 years of marriage. I wanted to share that with you because I knew it would be cheap applause. But, but go marriage anyway. So, uh, you know, but not everybody does things the old-fashioned way. I mean, today, relationships today, many of them are formed on the Internet. People get to know each other and, and build relationships on the internet before they even ever meet face to face. My daughter did this when she was 15 or 16. And keep in mind, that was like 17 or 18 years ago. So for you people in your 20s and younger than that, let me give you a picture of what it looked like to have an internet relationship. We didn't have smartphones. We didn't have laptops. We didn't have, you know, uh, iPads. Basically, it was AOL Instant Messenger. 
And if you're not familiar with that, it is text messaging from a big desktop computer. You had to sit at your desk with this big computer and text message people. You could have a profile so people can kind of see what your interests and whatnot were. But my daughter entered into this internet relationship. She met a boy. He was 16 years old and he lived in Newport Beach. And, and like any good dad, I sat her down and I talked to her and I said, honey, you can't do this. You can't do this. You don't know who this guy is. You know, you think he's a 16-year-old boy. You think you know him. You think you're beginning to like him and build a friendship. You don't know anything about him other than who he says he is. He could be a 40-year-old fat man behind a computer trying to lure you in. We've all seen Dateline. I shared scary stories with her. But like any good 15, 16-year-old, she ignored me. She continued the relationship. It didn't last that long. They broke up. Broke up. Uh, She started another internet relationship. And I remember this one. I remember this one because it didn't end well. It didn't end well. Um, This this boy, his name was Patrick Watson. And, and, And he liked Skillet. He liked Five Iron Frenzy. He liked DC Talk. He liked Reliant K. All the bands that she liked. He played guitar. He was in a band. She was learning how to play guitar and she was passionate about the guitar and even played guitar in our worship down at the youth at the time. They were what would seemingly be a perfect couple. One day I walked into her room and I opened the door and I said, Corinne, do you know some kid named Patrick Watson? And she looked at me just, you know, her eyes just kind of glazed over and she didn't really say anything. And I said, do you? Do you know some kid named Patrick Watson? And she could, I could tell she was nervous and she just kind of, why? And I said, because I'm Patrick Watson. <laughs> yeah, it didn't end well for her. But it ended great for me. I got to say, you know what? Told you so. 40-year-old fat man posing to be a 16-year-old boy. Okay. Right now, you either love me or you hate me. Okay, but I I want to set your minds at ease. I had ground rules. Okay, when I started this... I had ground rules. I wasn't going to try to form some romantic relationship with my daughter. That would be weird. I wasn't going to try to get her to confess about any deep, dark secrets that she was hiding where I felt like I would have to intervene. I just wanted to establish a friendship to where she believed that she had a friendship with somebody named Patrick Watson. I did slip in one little thing. I did kind of go, hey, what do you think of your parents? (laughs) Luckily, it was positive. She she said, you know, my mom's great. My dad is amazing. My dad is probably the coolest guy in the world. He should have a website that says brentiscool.com. 
my mom is the luckiest woman in the world to be married to this man. Okay, maybe it didn't go quite like that, but, but, but close. So the truth is, though, I had her best interest at heart. When I set this whole thing up, I had her best interest in heart. Because there are people out there that are much more nefarious, that are much more evil, that want to take advantage that want to hurt and that want to destroy. And I wanted it rolling around in the back of her head every time she chatted with somebody online. This person may not be who they say they are. And that's kind of what we're going to look at today. There's got to be integrity in order to have relationship. There's got to be integrity in order to have community with one another. And that's what we're looking at. Uh, Turn to uh, Acts Chapter 4, verse 32. And uh, we're going to read, we're going to cover that all the way to 511 today. And, uh, and if you're using this Bibles in the seats in front of you, it's on page 912 and 913. So, God has something to say about integrity. And we're going to see it right now. Um, whoops. Now, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that anything belonged to him or was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as had need. I mean, here's this picture of people giving to one another, people even selling off properties in order to meet each other's needs for the common good. And this is the second time that Luke brings this up. He brought it up in in chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, about just this radical community, this radical sharing. And and I would say this, if he brought it up twice, I think we need to pay attention to what's going on. I think we need to hold it with some importance. You know, this talks about, these passages, they talk about a deep unity, a deep unity with everybody. The believers were of, of, of one heart and one mind. Their loves, their hopes, their passions, they were joined together. And this wasn't just some affiliation with a group or with a church. They were joined spiritually. They were joined passionately. They were committed to a message. There was no need among them. And for this to happen, there had to be some very costly sacrifices that people made in order to meet each other's needs and to care for one another in that way. The church wasn't stripping everybody of their wealth. They weren't stripping everybody from their possessions. Private ownership still continued in the church. It wasn't frowned upon to own your house. In fact, we see that in Acts 2.46. It says that they went to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So there was private ownership. There wasn't anyone looked down upon in that way. It was more like John the Baptist because they talk about lands and houses. And it kind of seems like people maybe were selling off their excess in order to meet each other's needs. And John the Baptist, you know, he said, for whoever has two tunics 
is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. You know, they weren't selling off everything so that they were in need. And it seems that it was done on a semi-regular basis. As the needs came up, the community got together and they met each other's needs. And again, I want to be clear. It was voluntary. It wasn't mandatory, which is important because, because when things are done voluntarily, they're done with joy. It brings unity. When things are forced upon you or coerced, then there's resentment and there's bitterness and there's division. Let me show you, like Nancy and I, when we bought our house, when we bought our house, we were like-minded. We both wanted a house. We both kind of knew what we wanted in a house. We wanted that stability of being in a community where we can plant roots, where we can raise our children we wanted a house. We were in unity together. We didn't, we didn't begrudge the fact that it was going to be a big financial sacrifice to buy a house. In fact, we looked at how much can we spend on a house? What's the most we can spend on a house to meet our needs, to stay within our budget? As opposed to when things are forced upon you, or are non-voluntary, like say when Nancy and I pay our taxes. I mean, yeah, we want to meet our legal obligation, but we want to pay as little as possible. There is a big difference in your heart when you do things voluntarily versus when it is expected or forced upon you. And another thing I want to point out, this, this passage that we're reading, it's not a just about finances. It's not just about finances. Yeah, they were buying, they were selling their properties, they were bringing it to, but they were sharing everything in common. They were sharing food. They were sharing their skills and their talents for one another. You know, we see that going on right here in our community. I mean, obviously, people are making financial sacrifices, but also, People are sharing in their time and their talents. I was meeting with a woman a few months ago. She was devastated. Her husband had just left the family. She was a stay-at-home mom. She didn't know how she was going to pay her bills. Uh, she didn't know how uh, cooperative he was going to be with, you know, helping them pay the mortgage and everything else. She was scared. She was devastated. She was broken. And as I'm talking to her in my office, she gets a phone call. And somebody at her house said, sprung a leak in the bathroom, the bathroom's flooding. And I could just see like just this, just this overwhelmed, what am I going to do? I can't, I don't even know if I can make my mortgage this month. Now I've got to find and pay a plumber. So I prayed with her and uh, and I told her, I'm going to make a phone call. So she went home. And I called one of the guys here. His name's Rudy. He's a plumber. He's a great guy. I said, hey, Rudy, dude, here's the situation. You think you can help? And he said, sure, I'll stop by on my way home from work. So he stopped by on his way home from work, went in, he fixed the leak, and just told her, don't even worry about it. Don't worry about it, it's covered. Yeah, 
And we have people here, James Project, we have carpenters in this congregation who have, on more than one occasion, mind you, gone into somebody's house who was in an accident and now is wheelchair-bound or had somebody that was in a wheelchair and went in and adapted their house to be wheelchair-accessible, lowering the counters, widening the doors, putting in a new tub so they could get in and out. They were sharing everything in common. Why? Why were they doing that? Why do people do that? Because we're living out the integrity of the message. I mean, think about it. Christ sacrificed everything for us. Shouldn't we just sacrifice some, at least? And something interesting in this, because, you know, we just read verses 32 to 34. And it's talking about this, this radical community where people are selling off their stuff. They're meeting each other's needs. There's this unity there, community Sandwiched right in between there, verse 33. Sandwiched right in between there is this. It says, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. Why is that kind of interrupting this flow of what community life looked like? You know why? Because it wanted to remind us. It wanted to remind us the reason for the unity in their hearts, the reason for the unity in their minds, the reason for the unity in their passions. And that was the gospel. That was the message. Above all, this was a witnessing community. And they were witnessing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, if we get focused on the community aspect, if we get too focused on the internal, we will lose sight of the eternal. You know, we don't want to consolidate. We want to expand the message. Two weeks ago, Greg talked about miracles and how miracles pointed to the message. And last week, Jared was talking about the church praying for boldness because they were going through difficulty. And what were they praying for? Boldness. Boldness for what? Boldness for the message. And here we see community living together in integrity with one another because they wanted to live out the message. They wanted to send out the message. Community life isn't the means to the end. Maintenance of the community or the group is not the primary consideration. Reaching the lost is. We can't get too focused on consolidating it. We want to expand and expand by way of the gospel and the message. We don't want to simply become a community. We want to be a witnessing community on message together. People talk about Acts being, you know, if you want to learn about the church and how it formed and blah, 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 read the book of Acts. Acts is not just about the church as a community. Every chapter in Acts talks about evangelism. Every chapter of Acts talks about the message that they were sharing. Acts is about the church in relationship together to share the message. And that's the gospel. Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, 
He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Joseph, the apostles called him the son of encouragement, Barnabas. Which leads us to be, this giving was most likely public. It was most likely a public event. And it's not public like, you know, let's toot the horns and hey, look at me. It was public in the sense that it wasn't done in secret. This was a community. People knew each other. The needs weren't made secret, and meeting those needs weren't done in secret. And more than that, it was a submission thing. This was a submission thing, a submission to the authority of the apostles and the church, and a commitment to the mission and the message of the gospel together. That's what we're seeing going on here. That is what this is about. You know what? Not everybody is on mission. Not everybody is on message. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property and with it, his wife's knowledge, with his wife's knowledge, they kept back for themselves some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? When your land remained unsold, was it not yours? Wasn't it yours to do whatever you wanted with it? And after it was sold, the money, wasn't that yours? Wasn't that yours to do whatever you wanted with it? Ananias and Sapphira, they, they conspired They conspired to only give part of it. But obviously, they were saying they gave all of it, but they were keeping some back for themselves. And again, I want to remind you, this is most likely a public thing. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Many people want recognition. Many people want a reputation for having a good character. And sometimes people want these things without deserving them. They want these things without the effort. They want these things without the sacrifice. They want this without the character. Let me ask you, I mean, kind of, don't we all do that a little bit? I mean, don't, don't we really, don't all of us do that a little bit? Praying to God, praying to God, oh God, take away this temptation that I'm dealing with. Just take it away from me. And although that's not a totally bad prayer in itself, part of that is, God, I want you to take this away from me so that I don't have to make the hard decisions, say no to myself and sacrifice. I want it without really having any skin in the game. You know, how many times have we been, oh, Lord, give me patience now. Don't we all do that a little bit? You know, you look at people's Facebook feeds and it's always like the best of their life. You know, you're looking at their feeds going, my gosh, these people are amazing. Their family, their children never misbehave. Wow. You know, people post on Facebook, 
you know, it's our anniversary for such and such years. And, oh, my gosh, I am like the luckiest person in the world to be married to such an amazing person. How blessed am I? When the last five years they've been at each other's throats, they don't like each other, and they're, and they're, and they're getting a divorce. When people come up to you and say, how are you doing? And you say, good, when you know that's not true. Don't we all do it a little bit? I mean, these things lack integrity, but I do think kind of sometimes it's, it's about saving face. And I'm not endorsing that. But it's more about saving face. Sometimes, though, it's way more nefarious than that. It's way more evil than that. And we have probably witnessed or we're familiar with stories and bad examples. Like the person at work who takes credit for work they didn't do in order to leapfrog somebody for a promotion. Politicians who fight a cause and fight a cause only to be found out that they're doing it themselves or they get convicted. Or pastors, televangelists, you know, who deceive a widow on a fixed income. Pray for, you know, send me hundreds of dollars and I will pray for you from my ivory tower. People who are in poverty, send me a thousand dollars and the Lord is going to bless you and you're going to be so rich, you're not even going to know what to do with all that money. Hey, think about that televangelist for a minute. Taking advantage of widows, taking advantage of people in poverty. Let me ask you, how, how does that affect the integrity of his message? How does that affect the integrity of the message? We don't like it. We don't like this. We don't like people who take advantage. We don't like people who cheat. We don't like people who take and do evil things to people. We want justice. We want justice. We want them punished. We want their name tarnished forever. We want honesty. We want transparency. We want integrity. We want the truth. And not only do we dislike it, God despises faking it and he takes it seriously. God hates falsehood and he takes integrity seriously. So Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, confronts Ananias. Ananias drops dead. He says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men. You lied to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Wow. Let me say this. Nothing scares people into tithing more than this verse. So... I'm just going to call the ushers forward, take an offering right now. No, I'm kidding. Fakers will use this passage to empty your pockets. And I want you to hear this. The truth is, the truth is this. What we've been talking about, what we've been reading about today, this isn't about money. This isn't about money. This is about the integrity of the church. Ananias and Sapphira, 
They weren't believers. They weren't truly part of the community. They were trying to position themselves into a place of influence. Like I said, this was probably done publicly. Barnabas, wow, what a great guy. He's a man of encouragement. You know what? If we sell our property and we say that we sold it for this much, but keep all this back for ourselves, we're going to have the reputation of Barnabas. And you know what? If you could finagle your way, because people are selling off their things. People are meeting the needs of everybody. If you could finagle your way into certain positions of influence, wow, there would be a lot of opportunity to help yourself to dishonest gain. Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, confronts him. He says, Satan has filled your heart. He has, has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep some back. He has, he has motivated you. He has filled your heart. And one thing I want to say is Satan's activity didn't remove Ananias' culpability or responsibility in those decisions. And the most serious thing he did wasn't holding something back for himself because he said, when you sold it, the money was yours to do whatever you wanted to. It was that he lied. He lied to the Holy Spirit. He deceived. Since giving wasn't, you know, giving everything wasn't mandatory, the only thing is they were trying to devise a plan to gain some sort of esteem in the church. They were being dishonest. I want to warn you right now. I really want to warn you. When we lie about who we are, when we lie about who we are, one of the dangers is we become dishonest with ourselves. We start on some level to believe those lies and we have to in order to perpetuate them. And when we're not honest with ourselves, when we're deceiving ourselves, we shut the door that permits God's grace to enter our lives. When people lack integrity, they can't be genuine. Their relationships aren't genuine. It breaks down trust. It breaks down unity. And it breaks down any real chance for relationship. We've got to be honest. We've got to be honest with ourselves. We've got to be honest with one another. We've got to be transparent and truthful. Because God takes truth very seriously. God is truth. And when we see this, he moved quickly. He moved strongly to protect the integrity of the church, to protect the integrity of the message. And I don't know if it's rolling around in your head, but uh, the last couple of weeks as I've been reading this and kind of going over it, one of the things that I grappled with was why, didn't, why doesn't God do this all the time? There'd be a lot more empty seats. <laughs> but why? I mean, he did it here. Why doesn't he do it all the time? And after prayer, after studying, I came up with the answer. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why he doesn't do it all the time. But I do know this. This time, and it was recorded, shows what God thinks 
about integrity, what God thinks about deceivers, what God thinks about the truth, and to what extent he will go to protect the message. And you might be sitting there going, you know, I lied. I've lied. <laughs> I didn't die. You know, don't think for a moment, don't think for a moment that something in you didn't die. Don't think for a moment that, that something inside of you wasn't killed off. There is a friend of our family, his name is Ken Sears, <clears throat> and just great, I've known him almost my whole life, he's like my uncle. And in the 60s and 70s, he worked in In-N-Out. He managed an In-N-Out as a general manager. And he cooked burgers all day long. Five days a week, six days a week, whatever, he cooked burgers all day long. And part of it was he would grab the buns off that flat grill and put it together and send it off. And he would just brush against that flat grill with his fingertips as he grabbed those buns. And after years of doing that, thousands of times, the nerve endings in his fingers died a little bit. He got calluses on his fingertips to the point that he could put his fingertips on the hot grill and it didn't affect him like it would affect you or I. Don't think for a moment that something in you didn't die. When you're dishonest, when you're dishonest with yourself, it stunts your ability for growth, faking it, being concerned with appearance and really being concerned with your appearance and not with your integrity will force you to lose your hatred and your disgust for sin. Because you know what? I did it. I didn't really suffer any consequences. Is it really that big of a deal? You will lose your hatred and your disgust for sin, and it will blind you. It will blind you to the holiness of God. We will lose our innocence. We will develop scar tissue on our conscience. We will develop a calloused heart. Sapphira continues to lie. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. She didn't know what happened. And Peter said to her, tell me, did you really sell the property for this much? You know, he asked her, tell me, did you sell the land for so much? And she said, yeah, we sold it for so much. And Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet she breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and great fear came upon all who heard of these things. Whew. He struck fear in the whole church. He struck fear in anybody that heard about this story. I mean, let's face it, fear is a powerful motivator. Fear isn't necessarily a bad thing. People always feel like, you know, oh, the Bible, you know, it always says fear is bad, fear is bad. Fear is not necessarily a bad thing. 
Who should we fear? Should we fear men? No. No, we don't need to fear men. Should we fear death? If we're a believer, we know we have life after death. We don't need to fear death. Should we fear judgment? If we're a believer, we've been declared righteous before God. We don't need to fear judgment. Should we fear God? Yeah. Yes. Fear God. Again, the scriptures don't say fear is bad. And in fact, it tells us to fear. It tells us to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And people kind of kind of, kind of poo-poo that a little bit and, uh, you know, and just say, well, you know, yeah, it's not, it's not talking about fear, like being afraid of God. It's talking about reverence, have reverence and honor for God, not be afraid. Now, I think it's talking about fear with a capital F because it tells us don't fear men who can kill you. Fear God. Fear the Lord who, after you've been killed, has the authority to cast you into hell and eternal damnation. Fear him. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear is a powerful motivator. Fear can motivate us to do right. I mean, there are things we wouldn't do because we don't want to go to jail. There are things we don't do because we fear the consequences of them. When we're speeding down the road and a cop gets behind us, our heart starts pounding and we come back down to the legal speed limit. Fear is a powerful motivator to do right. And God is protecting his church. God is protecting the message because you know what? They were sharing something. They were sharing something that is unfathomable. They're sharing something that is totally unbelievable, but it's true that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Who would believe that story from people you knew had integrity problems? God was protecting the integrity of his church. Let me put it this way. If you you knew somebody to be really a person of integrity, if you knew somebody to be truthful and honest upstanding and they came to you and said hey last night last night i was in this field and uh this ufo just landed there and these aliens came out and they started talking to me and then they took me in and they took me on a tour of the ufo and then they sent me home how hard would it be for you to believe that story knowing this person to be truthful and full of integrity And then how easy would it be for you to believe this story if you knew this person to be a liar? They were telling not just a story, they were sharing a truth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. They had to have integrity to back up that message. And I say, yeah, we should, you know, fear is good. Fear is a good motivator. But I also say this. Love casts out fear. Love casts out fear. You know, and love, true love means that I will do whatever it takes. I will sacrifice for your best to to look out for your back. And that's what Christ did for us. He loved us enough to take our sin. And you know what? That love 
gives us confidence. We don't have to fear. Love casts out that fear. We need to be integrous. We need to be integrous to really be in relationship with another. Because without it, there is no trust. And without trust, there is no relationship. So I'm going to ask you guys, as we kind of close here, I just I want to ask you guys to just kind of get into kind of a, in your heads for a minute. And I want you to take inventory. I want you to take inventory for a moment on, on a truthful and honest look at your relationship with Christ. Are you living it out with integrity? Or are you faking it with yourself? Are you faking it with others? And I don't mean, you know, you're living at the standard that you want to be in the sense that you're striving for that. I mean, you're faking it. We all want to go to heaven. We all want to have a saving relationship with God. But the truth is, it's most likely some of you in this very room don't. You don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You know you're playing a game. You show up on Sunday and, and then never even give God another thought the rest of the week. Or you say you're a Christian, but your life doesn't line up with the integrity of the message of the gospel. And so I just want to encourage you, take, take that moment and contemplate that. Don't settle. Don't settle for a celebrity relationship with God. Don't settle for a celebrity relationship with God. And what I mean by that is, you know, when we think about celebrities, I mean, we know their name. We know what day they were born. We know their wife's name. We know their kids' names. We know their dog's names. We feel like we know this person, but if we showed up at their house and knocked on their door and tried to get in, they would call the police on us. There's no relationship. And the scriptures are clear. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one that does the will of my Father in heaven. And on that day, on that judgment day, they will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I'm calling the cops. And you're thinking, maybe you realize you may know about God, but you don't know God. And I want to give you an opportunity really right now to just be real, to be real and honest before him. Maybe you're realizing that you don't have integrity with God in your relationship and acknowledge that you haven't really given your life over to him. You can turn that around right now. And I want to give you that opportunity to be real with God, to have integrity in your relationship with God. And it begins with confession. It begins with confession. He says, confess your sins, and I am faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. But also, confession isn't just, hey, God, I did this, forgive me. Confession goes hand in hand with repentance. Confession means, I agree with you, God, that this is wrong, and I'm going to stop, and I'm going to go the other way. I am going to repent from my sin. And I'm going to live the way you tell me to live 
and not the way I tell me to live. And if that's you, if you're wrestling with that, I just, uh, I want to pray with you right now. Oh, Lord, Father God, just humbly come before you. And as we take inventory of our lives and our motives, and even our integrity, Lord, we can realize that we're just playing a game. That we really don't have a relationship with you. And, uh, and Lord, I just pray for those that want one. That want to have that relationship with you. That want to realize, Lord, that they need to submit and give their life over to you. And follow you. And be real. Again, just, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my sin. I choose to repent. I choose to glorify you and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.